So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51 this morning. Ever since I was a little kid, I've always been a big fan of road trips. How many, how many of you guys like to go on a good road trip? Uh, there's, there's nothing like, you know, packing up the car and uh, setting out with your family for, uh, for untold adventures and, you know, all, just all the crazy stuff that happens on a road trip. That's what, part of what makes it fun, let alone the, the destination that you're headed to. When I was a kid, uh, we did a lot of road trips in the summer because my dad was a traveling apologist and evangelist, and so we would spend a lot of time heading to different camps and churches where, where my dad was going to be speaking. And uh, one time, when I was about 12 years old, we were headed down through uh, the southwest United States. We were driving through the deserts of Nevada on our way to California. And if you've ever driven through Nevada, it's one of like the bleakest terrains on the face of the earth. I mean, you just go for hours and hours without seeing anything. But, but there's some beautiful scenery too out in the desert, you know, these huge rock formations. And um, so we're driving out in the middle of nowhere, headed towards Southern California. And, uh, you know, my brother and I were little kids at this time. I'm 12, he's eight. And, and uh, we had to go to the bathroom. All right. Now, there, there's not a lot of uh, services out there in the middle of the desert, but there's also not a lot of traffic. So my dad decided, you know, hey, we're just going to pull over to the side of the road. You get, you know, run down in the ditch and take care of your business down there. Right. So uh, so my dad pulls over off the highway there. And friends, I kid you not, we are in the middle of nowhere. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And my brother and I, we go running down off the road into the ditch to uh, to relieve ourselves. And as we're standing there, I kid you not. As we're standing there, I look down, and all of a sudden, a tumbleweed comes blowing across our feet, full of $20 bills. No joke. There was like 100-some dollars of $20 bills stuck to this tumbleweed. And uh, we just thought, man, this is awesome. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my dad used it as a lesson to teach us, you know, how God always provides. And, uh, and uh, but... I mean, out in the middle of nowhere, of all the places we could have stopped, right there, my brother and I come up with this treasure of, uh, of, of $20 bills and this tumbleweed. It was, it was terrific. That's one of the reasons why I love road trips, right? I mean, you never know. You never know the kind of adventures, the surprises, the treasures you're going to discover. And, uh, and it, road trips are a lot of fun. Well, today we are going to embark on an epic road trip with Jesus and his disciples. You see, from this point on in the Gospel of Luke, the the narrative changes, the storyline changes, the plot changes as Jesus and his disciples for the next 10 chapters are going to be on an epic road trip on a journey to Jerusalem, a journey that would lead Jesus to his Passion Week where he would die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave conquering sin and death. And so for the next 10 chapters, from chapter 9 to chapter 19, Jesus and his disciples are going to be on the road. And we have the privilege of joining them on this journey, on this epic road trip with, with Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to discover some incredible spiritual treasures. We're going to find some tumbleweed full of $20 bills as we open up the Gospel of Luke together. And we're going to see some incredible blessings in the Word of God as we look at the teachings of Jesus. But as we begin this journey this morning with Jesus and his disciples to Jerusalem. I want to I warn you this morning, while our passage today is a powerful section of Scripture, if you're looking for a, a warm and fuzzy feel-good passage today, th- this one isn't it. Instead, what we're going to find as we begin 
our journey to Jerusalem today are some of Jesus' most challenging teachings on discipleship. Jesus is going to challenge his disciples, and he's going to challenge us to count the cost, to count the cost of following him. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait, wait a minute, count the cost. I thought, I thought a relationship with Jesus Christ was a free gift, right? And, and if you're thinking that, you're absolutely correct. Salvation, the gift of salvation, the gift of a new life in Christ is a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. Jesus gives us the gift of salvation freely. It's available to all who will put their trust in him. But at the same time, as we're going to see this morning, while we embrace the gift of salvation freely, friends, there is often a cost involved in choosing to follow Jesus. There are sacrifices involved in choosing to follow Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is not the way of this world. And it may cost us something to follow him. We're going to see some examples of that this morning as we turn to the word. So if you have your Bibles, take a look at Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 51 to 62. I want to read this passage together this morning, then I want to come back and I want to highlight some principles for us about the essential commitments of a follower of Jesus Christ. What are are we committing to when we choose to follow Jesus Christ? Let's take a look at this passage. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Stop here for a minute, friends. I was so tempted to preach on these six words this morning. These are six of the greatest words in the whole Bible. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The literal translation is is Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He was committed. He was a man on a mission. Why? Because he saw you when he looked to Jerusalem. He had your face in mind when he headed towards Jerusalem. He set his face. He was committed. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem because each and every one of you were on his mind and in his heart because he knew it was the only way for you to be saved. Man, we we could spend the whole hour talking about just those six words. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And so they headed out. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there, the people of Samaria, they did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another man said to Jesus, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Wow. If you thought walking with Jesus was going to be some kind of walk in the park, friends, think again. I can just imagine his crowd of followers peeling off one by one as Jesus is sharing these teachings. Hey, Pete, look at that. There goes another one. One by one, peeling away the crowds. 
See, in four illustrations this morning, our passage highlights for us the cost of following Jesus. And this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a look at each of these illustrations. And what we're going to find in these illustrations are four essential commitments that every follower of Jesus must be ready to embrace. Four essential commitments that every follower of Jesus must be ready to embrace. Let's take a look at these together. Commitment number one, to follow Christ is to embrace a life of mercy. To follow Christ is to embrace a life of mercy. Jesus and his disciples, they start out on this epic road trip headed to Jerusalem, and they're up in Galilee, and so to get to Jerusalem, there's either two paths. You either go right through the middle of the state of Israel, which takes you right through the heart of Samaria, where the Samaritan people are, or you go around Samaria along the Jordan River, and that's kind of a roundabout way. It takes a little longer. And Jesus decides, you know what, we're just going to go right down the middle, right through Samaria. But he sends his disciples ahead of him to get things ready for he and his followers. Remember, Jesus has a whole crowd of people following him, right? I mean, remember the feeding of the 5,000, right? This isn't Jesus and like 12 guys marching around. This was like a huge entourage of people following Jesus. And so when Jesus sends his disciples ahead to get things ready for him in this Samaritan town, it wasn't like, hey, go find a hostel where the 12 of us can stay tonight. It was like, we need to figure out how we're going to feed these people. We need to find like a campground or, or houses that will welcome all these people in. It was a big deal to find a place for Jesus and his followers to stay. But Luke tells us when his followers went ahead to prepare the way that the Samaritan people of this village that they went to didn't welcome them. Now, you need to understand a little background here, right? The Samaritans and the Jews literally hated each other. They hated each other. They were arch rivals. You see, the Samaritans were people who had been brought into Israel by the Assyrian Empire hundreds of years earlier. Remember in the first exile, when the northern kingdom was taken into exile in Assyria, the Assyrians then repopulated the northern kingdom of Israel with pagan peoples. And those pagan peoples ultimately intermarried with the Jews who remained there in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the Samaritans were viewed by the Jews of southern Israel, of the Jews of Jerusalem, as being half-breeds, if you will pagan people who had intermarried with Jews who had mixed up the pure Jewish blood, but they had retained the Jewish religion. But see, the purebred Jews wanted nothing to do with them. So the Samaritans, they actually had to come up with their whole own temple. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim up in Samaria. It was a complete uh, model of the temple in Jerusalem. They had their own worship. They had their own priests. They had their own practice of Judaism But the people of Jerusalem, the Jews of southern Israel, wanted nothing to do with them. And so when Jesus and his disciples are rejected, it's because these Samaritans discover, hey, they're headed to Jerusalem. They're headed to the temple where the the purebred Jews worship. Well, you guys can just go find yourself a new place to stay. This was a harsh rivalry, friends. Josephus, the Roman historian, he actually reports that Samaritans at one time actually killed a whole band of Jewish Uh, pilgrims headed to Jerusalem. They just killed them. There's another story during New Testament times of the Samaritans actually sneaking into the temple in Jerusalem and desecrating the temple, throwing throwing, uh, cut up pig parts into the temple. I mean, these guys hated each other. And so understand this, friends. When James and John say, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Let's wipe these guys out. 
right? This was a natural response to any purebred Jew. Any good Jewish boy would say the same thing. These guys are our enemies. Jesus, they're rejecting you? Well, why don't we give it to them? Now, keep in mind, these disciples, they still thought at this point that Jesus was going to be some kind of military savior. They were still hoping for a revolution at this point. They thought that the Messiah was going to come. He was going to raise up an army. He was going to march into Jerusalem. He was going to clean out the temple. He was going to wipe out the Romans. He was going to free the Jewish people once and for all and set up God's kingdom on earth. They thought they were being raised up as an army. That's why they thought they were going to Jerusalem. They were going to go whoop up on the Romans. And so James and John are like, hey, forget the Romans. Why don't we just start right now with these Samaritans? Let's get them off the map. Jesus, we'll call down fire from heaven. Boom, they're gone. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus rebukes them. Jesus rebukes his disciples. Friends, I'll tell you something. When the Son of God rebukes you, you better pay close attention. You know what I'm saying? What was the rebuke all about? You see, what the disciples didn't understand, what they failed to see at this point was that the kingdom of God wasn't going to come through warfare and military might and earthly power. What Jesus was going to do was establish the kingdom of God through humility and mercy and grace. And you know, you got got to just wonder sometimes if Jesus just kind of sometimes just shook his head at his disciples. You know what I mean? Jeez, guys, come on. I mean, think about this. Just three chapters earlier, back in Luke chapter 6, remember what Jesus had taught his followers? Luke chapter 6, 27 through 31. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop from Taking, from him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Here the disciples are like, Jesus, let me call down fire from heaven. And Jesus is like, oh my God, these guys just don't get it. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is mercy and grace. In humility, it's doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Friends, I'll tell you something. Our world needs the way of Jesus more than ever. You watch the news lately? Our world is drowning in hatred, distrust, revenge, intolerance. It's destroying us. If the world ever needed the way of Jesus... It's today. I want to show you a video that was on CBS Nightly News uh, a couple years ago. Powerful story of a woman who embraced the way of Jesus through a life of mercy. And I think she really points the way for us in terms of what it means to embrace a life of mercy as followers of Jesus Christ. Take a look. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. 
Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, CBS yes, News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. When God's people embrace a life of mercy, it's a powerful thing. And even the world can't stop but take notice. Jesus calls us as his followers to embrace the way of mercy, to offer grace, to offer forgiveness. And again, friends, our world needs, like, needs that as never before. Who in our lives can we extend the grace of Jesus to? Who in our lives do we need to offer forgiveness and mercy? It's a powerful, transformative force. The second commitment of a follower of Jesus is that to follow Christ is to embrace a life of discomfort. Now, Many of you are thinking, oh, well, you know, embracing a life of mercy, well, that's, that's, that's a nice idea. But here, these essential commitments of the follower of Jesus become a little more difficult. And this is where I think some of those followers of Jesus begin to peel away from the crowd. 
To follow Christ is to embrace a life of discomfort. A man comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere you go. Jesus says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's Jesus getting at here? Jesus is saying, look, hey, if you want to follow me, you better be ready to sacrifice some of the comforts of this world. You better be ready to face some hardships for the sake of my name. Now, I'll tell you something, friends. This isn't exactly what you call a seeker-friendly principle, all right? When you go to church growth conferences, they don't tell you to start with a tagline that says, hey, come follow Jesus. He's going to make your life really uncomfortable. But Jesus says, look it, if you're going to follow me, you need to be ready to embrace a life of discomfort. And this is really, when you think about it, this is a revolutionary idea. This is like exactly the opposite of what most of us want to hear. You know what I mean? Most people in our world today want to do everything that we can to maximize our comfort. Don't, don't tell me I'm going to embrace a way that's going to lead to discomfort and hardship in my life. I, I, I want to be as comfortable as possible, right? I mean, I got my my pillow and my Tempur-Pedic mattress, and I got my gel orthotics in here, and I'm, I'm even wearing uh, pants with a comfort fit waistband. I mean, they're all, these things extend like an extra two inches. Not that I need that, of course, right? But, but uh, I mean, we do everything in our power to maximize our comfort. And Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. There's often a cost to following Jesus, friends. Now, following Jesus isn't going to mean that you're going to be homeless. It's not necessarily going to mean that you're going to face overt physical persecution. It's not necessarily going to mean that you're going to face martyrdom like many of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East this morning. But there is often a personal cost, a personal sacrifice involved with following Jesus. It may cost you something. It may cost you something in your relationships. I had a guy from our church just this week. He called me. He said, Jason, I have a coworker. My friend, he, we're, we're buddies at work, and, and he's invited me to a housewarming party. But he said, Jason, uh, he's bought this new house. They're having this housewarming party, but here's the deal. The, the guy's a Wiccan. He, he, he's, a, he's, a, he, he, he's a pagan. He practices paganism. And he's going to have a pagan priestess at his housewarming ceremony to do a blessing ceremony over his house as part of this party he's invited me to. What do I do, Jason? I said, you can't go to that party. As Christians, we can't have anything to do with pagan priests invoking demonic spirits asking a blessing over a home. That's antithetical to what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I said, you've got to explain that to your friend. And you got to tell him you love him. you got to tell him you're going to ask the Lord to bless his home. But you got to just lovingly tell him you can't come to that party. You see, sometimes following Jesus means counting the cost in our relationships. Sometimes following Jesus may mean counting the cost in our livelihood or our reputation. I, I, I think of the, the woman, Baron Stutzman. Many of you have followed her story on the news this past year. The, the florist from Oregon who because out of her Christian convictions denied a request to provide flowers for a gay wedding ceremony. Baron Stutzman was sued by this gay couple who she had previously served as customers for years. But because of her Christian convictions, she said, I I just can't participate in your, your wedding ceremony. And this couple has now sued her and ruined her business, ruined her reputation. 
She's been dragged through the courts. Her name has been smeared all over social media. Her case is now being taken to the Supreme Court this next year. But you see, she's counted the cost because of her commitment of following the way of Jesus. Sometimes following Jesus will require personal sacrifices. You know, as some of you know, I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world doing teaching on apologetics and evangelism. And I'll tell you something, in all of my travels, I, I don't like traveling. Every time I go on the road, I, I don't like being away from home. I, I hate leaving my wife. I hate leaving my kids. I, I don't like traveling at all. There's nothing glamorous about it to me. I remember a few years back, my dad and brother and I were in China teaching for underground house churches. And one of these underground house churches had invited us into their city up in northern China, and they had provided an apartment for us for that week. And I remember the night we arrived at our apartment where we were going to be staying for seven nights, we walked into this apartment that was sparsely furnished, just a simple bed and mattress, simple table and chair. And I looked on the walls of the apartment, and there was literally black mold running from floor to ceiling in my bedroom. And I just wanted to go home. And I started thinking, Lord, how can I get out of this? You know, I mean, maybe I can ask to go to a hotel or something. And, and I remember my dad pulled my brother and I aside that evening, and we had a word of prayer. And my dad, in his prayer, he prayed these words I'll never forget. He asked the Lord, he said, Lord, make your priorities our priorities this week. Make your priorities our priorities. See, friends, that's the key to embracing the hardships that may come with following Jesus. It's a commitment. It's a lifestyle. It's a life of prayer that says, Lord, make your priorities my priorities today. No matter what it may cost me in my relationships, in my livelihood, in my career, in my reputation, in my personal sacrifices, Lord, may your worldview be my worldview. Give me the privilege, Lord, of seeing the world through your eyes. Give me the privilege, Lord, of seeing the people in my life through your eyes. Help me love the way you would love Jesus. God, make your priorities our priorities. Friends, is that the cry of your heart this morning? Because to follow Christ is to often embrace a life of discomfort. And I'll tell you something, if you don't have God's priorities in view, that's going to be a very difficult thing to do. Thirdly, today we see in our passage that to follow Christ is to embrace a life of urgency. A life of urgency. A second man is walking with Jesus and Jesus calls to him, come and follow me. And this man says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go home and bury my father. And Jesus responds, he said, let the dead bury their dead. You come follow me. Now, now, this sounds like a pretty harsh statement on Jesus' part, right? I mean, I mean, the guy wants to go bury his dad for Pete's sake. And Jesus is like, hey, you let the dead bury their own dead. Come and follow me. I mean, this sounds pretty tough. You need to understand some background on this, though, however. There was no greater religious obligation in first century Judaism than to bury one's parent. It was the paramount religious duty of a Jew above all other things, was to provide your parent with a proper burial. In fact, the Pharisees, we've talked a lot about the Pharisees here on Sunday mornings, all of their laws, 800-some laws that they had created, even the Pharisees would exempt you from following the various laws, 
the laws of the Torah and all the Pharisaical, they would exempt you for the sake of providing a proper burial for your parent. There was nothing more important in Judaism than to bury one's parent. So let me ask you a question. What's this guy doing following Jesus around through the middle of Israel if his dad's passed away? The answer was this guy's dad hadn't passed away. This guy was just stalling. This guy was simply saying to Jesus, look at Jesus, let me go back and bury my dad. If his dad was dead, he'd already be there with him. There was nothing more important to a good Jew than to bury one's parent. He wouldn't be traipsing around the country with Jesus. He would have already been there burying his dad. This guy was doing nothing but stalling. Jesus is saying, look, hey man, we're on a mission here. We got urgent business here. And this guy saying, Jesus, let me go back. What he's really doing, friends, I, I would venture to guess, is he's thinking, look at, I want to follow Jesus, but, but my dad is sick. I need to go back. And, and here's the thing, like I may even get some inheritance out of this deal, right? So I got to go back and I got to take care of all that business first. And then I'll jump on the Jesus train and come follow you. This guy was stalling. And Jesus is saying, look at dude, we're on a mission. We're on an urgent business here. There's no time to waste. I remember two years ago when my beautiful wife, Kim, was diagnosed with cancer. I'll never forget, one day she's diagnosed with cancer. Two days later, she's in the hospital going to the oncologist. The day after that, she's getting her chemo port put in. A couple days after that, she's starting chemotherapy. It was like boom, 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 boom. I mean, the process, it was like being thrown into a whirlwind. They just, they just started getting things done. It wasn't like, hey, come back in a week, come back in a month. We'll run. It was like boom, boom, boom. We're going to get this done. You see, there was a sense of urgency on the part of Kim's doctors because her life was at stake. You don't mess around at that point. And the reality is, friends, the greater, the, 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 the more serious the circumstance, the more urgent the response needs to be. Am I right? And Jesus is saying, look it, there are people out here who are dying. There is a lost and dying world out here that needs the hope of the kingdom of God. And we are on a mission we are on mission to bring the kingdom into this world. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to provide the forgiveness of sins, which is ultimately what all of us need more than anything. And now is not the time to stall. Now is not the time to delay. Now is the time to get on mission. Friends, let me ask you this morning, do we share the same sense of urgency for the lost people in our lives? When you think about those people in your lives, family, friends, neighbors, who don't yet know Jesus, who haven't embraced the hope of new life in Christ, do you share that sense of urgency? I mean, their, their lives are at stake. Friends, life is short. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Life is like a vapor, like here today, gone tomorrow. And we have the words of life. We have the cure that the world needs. The hope of the gospel. Do we share this sense of urgency? You see, when Jesus says, hey, let the dead bury their own dead, what's Jesus getting at? What he's saying here, friends, he's saying this. He's saying, look, at the spiritually dead, they're going to continue to bury their dead unless we get them the message that they need so they might live. The dead are always going to bury their dead 
unless we bring them the hope of the gospel so that they can live. Jesus is encouraging us to embrace a sense of urgency. This mission is important. There's nothing more important. When I was a college pastor at my former church uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, there was a young man in my college ministry. His name was Billy, and, and uh, Billy was a Christian kid, but he spent his time when he was in college where he was really wrestling with a lot of spiritual questions. And one of the questions Billy had was, how could God send people to hell who had never heard the name of Jesus? Right? You, you ever wrestled with that? You know, Billy would come, well, you know, what about the guy out in the middle of the island in the Pacific Ocean or the guy in the jungle who's never heard the name of Jesus? How could God send that guy to hell? And we talked about this over and over again for weeks. It was just, Billy was struggling with this one. And one Sunday I said, Billy, here's the thing. You need to understand this. God doesn't send anyone to hell. It's our sin that sends us to hell. It's our rebellion against him that sends us to hell. God doesn't choose that. We choose that by rebelling against God. Look what Jesus says. John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Friends, God doesn't send people to hell. Our sin sends us to hell. And this is why the mission that Jesus has given us as his church is so important, because we have the words of life. We have the answer, the cure that the world needs. We have the hope of the gospel that can free people from their bondage to sin, that can usher them into the experience of a new life, an eternal life with God. And I shared this with Billy, and, and, and he started kinda, it started kind of making sense for him, started clicking with him, and, and, and yet he was still struggling with this. And he came back the next week, and he said, you know, I, I'm still wrestling with this, Jesus. I mean, what about the guy who's never heard about the name of Jesus? And so finally, one day, I just said to Billy, Billy, hey, if you're so concerned about the guy in the jungle who's never heard of Jesus, why don't you go and do something about it? Right? I mean, if you're so worried about the guy who's never heard about Jesus, why don't you go do something about it? That's what Jesus told us to do. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples. Right? So if you're so worried, get off your rear end and go do something about it. And I'll tell you what, it was like a light bulb went off above Billy's head when I said that. He just looked at me and said, I guess you're right. I've never thought of it that way. Friends, you want to know what Billy's doing today? Billy and his wife are now missionaries in Poland ministering to unchristian college kids on the university campuses in Poland. He cared about the people who hadn't heard the name of Jesus, so he got off his backside and he went out and did something about it. He embraced the sense of urgency. I'll tell you something, friends. That's a hero. Our world is looking for heroes today. You notice how many superhero movies are out these days? People are looking for heroes. Young people, you want a hero? I'll tell you where you're going to find a hero. You're not going to find it some guy flying around in his underoos. You're not going to find it watching The Voice. You're not going to find it watching The Bachelorette. If you want to find a hero, look to those people who lay it all on the line for the sake of the gospel who give everything to follow Jesus. Those are the real heroes. I, th I think of people like, like Bruce and Joy Carlson, son and daughter-in-law. 
Some of you guys know Bruce and Joy Carlson from our church. This next week, their son and daughter-in-law are moving to Rwanda, Africa for the next four years to serve as missionaries, laying it all down for the sake of the gospel. You want a hero? I, th- I think of women like Diane Shimaleski and Carrie Gustafson here in our church, single women who have made great personal sacrifices for the sake of the cross to take the gospel to people who need to hear the name of Jesus. These are heroes, friends. I, I think of Paul and Pat Post's son, Ben, who's working with underprivileged people down in Minneapolis with Urban Homeworks, a great organization we support here at our church, to bring them housing, to bring them hope, and to bring them the love of Jesus. I'm telling you, young people, you want a hero. You look to people who are doing something of eternal value. Those are the heroes. And, and, and friends, let me, let me make this straight. You don't have to be a missionary to be a hero and embrace a sense of urgency. God calls each and every one of us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ right where he's planted us. And so it doesn't matter if you work in a wood manufacturing company, if you work for the DNR, it doesn't matter if you work at a local coffee shop or the bank, right? You are all ambassadors of Jesus Christ who have been called to embrace the urgency of the mission of bringing the hope of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Will you embrace that mission? Lastly, this morning... To follow Christ is to embrace a life of focus. To follow Christ is to embrace a life of focus. Another man comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus says to this guy, no one who sets his hands to the plow and looks back is worthy for service in the kingdom of God. Now, now I'm no farmer, all right? And I've never spent a lot of time in the tractor plowing fields, but, but what's Jesus getting at here? Well, my buddy Mark can tell you, right? If you're driving the tractor trying to plow a row in your field, if you're looking over your shoulder, what's going to happen? All right? how, how many of you guys have riding lawnmowers? Right? You ever tried mowing a straight line in your yard while you're looking back? I, the other day, I'm mowing my lawn, and I'm looking back at something that caught my eye in one of my trees, and pretty soon I'm five feet over in my neighbor's yard. All right? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you need to embrace a life of focus. You need to be crystal clear on the mission here and pursue that mission with a laser-like focus because if you get sidetracked or distracted, if you start looking back, pretty soon that mission is going to get all out of whack. And we got important things to accomplish. Now, friends, there's a lot of ways we can lose focus. One of the ways that I've seen people... Uh, lose focus by looking back is, is people oftentimes will become paralyzed by their past. And I've seen this a lot in ministry. I've seen this happen many times where, where a person will catch fire for Jesus, but they'll lose their focus. They'll look back and they'll get distracted by their former life. They'll look back, they'll get distracted by the temptations of the, the life that they used to be a part of. And they'll fall back into their old patterns of behavior, their old sins, and pretty soon they're derailed from, derailed from their mission. They lose their focus. I, I, I've seen other times where, where people become paralyzed by their past. They lose their focus because they allow the enemy to beat them up with guilt over their past sins. I've seen people who are on fire for Jesus and all of a sudden they come into my office and they're just broken and they're defeated. And I ask them, what's the problem? And they say, Jason, Jesus could never use me. Jason, if you knew the things I used to do, if you knew just how, how perverse I was, if you knew how bad I had screwed up and damaged my family and my relationships, Jesus, Jesus could never use me. 
And friends, when those words are whispered into your mind, you need to understand very clearly those are the lies of the enemy. He's trying to derail you from your single-minded focus of following Jesus. People become paralyzed by their past and they lose their focus. How do we overcome this paralysis? It's really easy. 1 John 1, 9. This is a promise from the word of God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, if you've confessed your sins to the Lord, they are dead and buried. You can look back all you want. They're not there anymore. When we confess our sins, he will wipe our sins out once and for all and free us to walk in new life with him. You don't have to buy into the lies of the enemy that tell you that you're such a screw-up and you're so worthless and so no good that you'd never be fit for service in the kingdom of God. You don't have to buy those lies because it's baloney and it's not true. You have been forgiven by the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe. And you can walk in victory and you can serve him confidently. And so we confess our sins, we embrace that forgiveness, and then we follow the advice of Paul in Philippians. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, look at, I'm not looking over my shoulder anymore, all right? I'm forgetting that stuff, my old way of life, my past sins, all of that stuff, it's behind me, right? I'm not driving down my lawn looking over my shoulder. I'm focusing, Paul says, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, look, you keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep your eyes on Jesus and you just keep marching and you follow the king and he's going to lead you to life and life to the full and he's going to open up opportunities for you to serve him and to make a difference in this world. But you got to keep your eyes on Jesus. You got to maintain your focus. Friends, are you keeping your eyes on Jesus this morning? I got a good buddy by the name of Dave Busby. He was a pretty well-known evangelist. He died in his mid-40s of cystic fibrosis. But one of Dave's famous sayings, he used to say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Friends, this is why we're here. This is why we exist. We are ambassadors for the king of the universe. We're here to give our lives in service to the king. Is that your commitment? Is that your focus? Keeping the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. Let me close in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the, the challenging teachings even that you've given us, Jesus. And sometimes, Lord, while it's hard for us to, to hear these things and, and it convicts us sometimes, Lord, uh, Jesus, we, we want to count the cost and we want to follow you with wholehearted passion. Lord, as my friend used to say, help us to keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus, give us a a sense of urgency for the lost people in our lives. Give us a sense of focus, Lord, to, to remain committed to the call that you've given us as your church. Help us, God, to stay on mission and to not lose heart when the enemy sends his lies our way as he tries to discourage us and derail us from the mission that you've given us. God, let us keep our eyes fixed on you. And remember that we have the words of life that the world needs. Thank you for giving us the privilege of participating in this great calling, Lord. 
I pray, God, that as all of us this morning leave here, that we might be willing to count the cost, but that we might recognize it reaps an eternal reward. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen. This morning, as you're dismissed, we're going to show you one last video from our J316 soccer camps. It's a highlight video. We've got the white roses up on the stage again. We had a couple dozen kids that prayed to receive Christ. So you're free to leave, but if you'd like to stay and watch some of this video on your way out, please do so. God bless you, everyone. Have a terrific week.